so I can get through all this. But like I said, we're in our address in that series that covers the books of First and Second Corinthians. First uh, and Second Corinthians are actually two letters written by the Apostle Paul to a church he helped establish about four or five years previous to writing these letters. Uh, and when he established the church, he spent 14 or 15 months there, kind of training them and teaching them for ministry. Uh, so he left feeling pretty good about it, thinking that they would be able to hold their own, but he was wrong, because they made a mess of things. I mean, pretty much anything you can mess up in a church, they messed up. So he wrote these letters to kind of get them back on track. Now last week, Paul warned believers about their conduct uh, in the assembly, especially during the Lord's Supper, uh, but today he's going to shift from warning uh, his readers to teaching them about spiritual gifts, because this is one of those areas that this church had a lot of people who were very gifted, but they weren't using them like they should. So uh, successful churches are, as well, all you know, I'm a coach, so I look at things kind of from a coach's perspective a lot of times, but successful churches remind me of successful sports teams, because um, the way they work still is centered around teamwork. It's just the way it is. The only difference is, you know, uh, their goals, how they attain those goals, and, 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 uh, and what they consider to win. But every successful team, I mean, all of them, whether it be corporate or whether it be uh, church or whether it be athletic, uh, has to have a level of teamwork so that they can blend and actually uh, achieve their goals. Uh, and when a, when a church or any organization is doing what each person is doing, what they're supposed to be doing, and being a team player, they're going to grow. And that's kind of what Paul's trying to teach here today. So I titled today's message Teamwork uh, because he's basically teaching them that together they're stronger as a team. Okay, that's fast I get through that. Let's jump in. First Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 1. He says, now, dear brothers and sisters, regarding your questions about the special abilities uh, the Spirit gives us, I don't want you to misunderstand this. You know that when you were still pagans, you were led astray and swept along in worshiping speechless idols. Now, Paul starts off, he just doesn't have a lot of tact. I don't know if you noticed that about Paul. When, when Paul says something, I would never ask Paul if my butt looked big in those jeans. You know what I mean? Because he's going to tell you. Paul was just direct, and he went straight to the point. So he starts off chapter 12 by answering some uh, questions that they had about spiritual gifts. And then he says, listen, uh, there's a lot of you who used to be pagans. He brings up their past right away. Because some of their past had been kind of haunting them and creeping back into their present. So Paul pointed out, you know, something about their previous pagan lives. Look at this again, 12 uh, verse 2b. He says, you were led astray and swept along in worshiping speechless idols. The Greek word for led astray is apagoname, and what it means is it means, uh, it kind of gives the idea of uh, a criminal being led away to jail after being sentenced, or someone on death row being marched to the gas chamber. That's the kind of way they used it. Uh, it could also be used for being deceived or for deception, uh, but when you look in this context, he picked the perfect word because both of them worked here, because the Corinthians were being deceived. They were deceived when they were pagans. They became believers. He thought they had it together. All of a sudden, they're allowing false teachers to deceive them again. Uh, so they're being led down a path that has no good ending, and that's why he wanted to point out right away. He said, listen, when you were pagans, you were deceived. And he said, you worship speechless idols. And what he's saying there is that basically all the false idols, all the false gods that they worshiped were not real. He was saying they're speechless because you can pray your guts out. You can offer all the offerings you want. You can sacrifice all you want to them. They're not going to answer you. And they're not going to answer you because they're not real. Okay? It's like praying to the Easter Bunny. You're just wasting your time. Sorry about that, Roger. He doesn't exist. But I'm just saying, it's one of those things that, you know, he wanted them to get it through their head one more time. Listen, remember, you were deceived before. 
And you are worshiping idols that can't even respond to you. So be careful. It's not like you haven't proven that you couldn't be deceived. You've already done that one other time. But, you know, the thing that he was having troubles with is he was afraid that they were starting to kind of compromise and pursue some of those things uh, again because it sounds like the people in Corinth wanted to please everybody. They wanted to be looked up to by everybody, and that was a real problem. But one of the reasons he brought up their pagan lives was not just to throw it in their face, but there were a lot of false teachers that had made their way into the Corinthian church. Anytime God has a big movement, this might surprise you, but the enemy doesn't take vacation and let it go. When God starts a movement and things are growing, the enemy's going to put his plants in there and try to destroy it. And he had spies in there. He had plants that he put in, a, in the assembly to try to destroy it. Uh, and some of these believers were starting to have divided loyalties. And it was causing real problems in the church. And that by divided loyalties, I mean they started compromising things in their faith to be pleasing to Rome. And he was afraid they were going to compromise things in their faith because they were dealing with some of the pagans from their old lives and didn't want to be offensive. But in not being offensive, they were actually compromising their faith. For example, and this is just one of the things, I don't want to go through all of them, but uh, a Roman citizen was requi required once a year to take just a pinch of incense and throw it on the altar and say, Caesar is Lord. They were required to do that once a year. Now, obviously, to any true believer, I mean, they're not going to do that. To any true believer, that would be considered blasphemous. But by the way Paul's talking here, it sounds like some of the people in the Corinthian church were doing that just to make peace. They were going to proclaim that Caesar was Lord, which was blasphemous, right? Now, some of these same false teachers that were trying to deceive them into compromising for Rome... We're also trying to get them to question Jesus' Messiahship. Is he truly the Messiah? They were trying to kind of throw him off path, and they did get some people off path. Look at verse 3. This is why Paul said this. He said, So I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God will curse Jesus. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so what he was saying is, listen, I don't know how you're getting deceived by these false teachers. I spent all this time training you. You know who Jesus is. He's saying, let me just remind you of something. No one can say that Jesus is not the Messiah or Jesus is not the Lord and have the Holy Spirit moving in them. That can't be. He said, so those people that come to you, here's how you know if you should listen to them. If they don't proclaim by the Holy Spirit that Jesus is Lord, something is seriously wrong with them. Pay attention to that. Listen, in our society, I tell people all the time, listen, don't listen to people who say something that contradicts the Word. If it contradicts the Word of God, you need to run as fast as you can from that place. Right? And it's kind of the same thing he was saying. They, if they are trying to get you to, to, not, to deny Jesus, that should be a big red flag. You should see that those people are trying to deceive you because only the spirit of the enemy would say that Jesus is a curse or is not the Lord. And only someone who truly believes that Jesus is the Messiah will proclaim it to everyone. So he's saying, he's saying, listen to the people who are telling you to proclaim Jesus as Messiah. Now, a lot of times people hear this and they say, well, if someone would say that, they're probably not saved. That's not the case. Listen, the Bible tells us there are those who have forgotten they, once per they were once purged of their old sins. People can be deceived. People can be deceived into rejecting fundamental Christian truth. And you know what the beauty of God's grace is? That they're covered under that grace. They're still going to go to heaven. Now, will God bless the path there? No. 
Will their life be good? No. But people have gotten deceived who are believers uh, and just went through a hard phase in their life or a difficult time and lost a spouse or something and they were looking for answers. And the answers that they started paying attention to was from the enemy. This is what was going on and Paul was warning them about that. Now let's look at verses 4 through 7. He says, There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same Spirit is the source of them all. And I notice that's capital S. Uh, verse 5, there are different types or different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. God works in different ways, but it is the same God who does the work in all of us. A spiritual gift is given to each of us so that we can help each other. Now, identifying and employing someone's spiritual gift is kind of like building a sports team. When you're building a sports team, it's not easy. Trust me, it's not easy. Because building a team requires you to find talented people. And parents, let me let you in on a little secret. If they're not being personal if they cut your kid, if your kid's not good enough to play on that team, they're being merciful. Because why would they want to practice and never get to play? So it's the coach's responsibility. I've had coaches come to me all the time and say, I don't know what to do. I don't want to play him. I, I feel like I should cut him. And I say, maybe you should have done a better job picking the talent so you wouldn't be in this situation. It's kind of the same thing. Paul needed to find confident believers. A good sports team needs confident players, people who want the ball, people who want to be a team player. Um, a good Christian organization, a good church needs people who love Jesus and want to be a part of a team and want to reach people for Jesus. That's what a good church needs. So it's kind of the same thing. And Paul knew that he had to acknowledge two things about spiritual team building uh, that was really important. He knew that a good coach acknowledges the value of all the different talents you have on your team. A good, a good coach will actually uh, value that and know about that. And Paul knew that each gift on that team was equally important but dependent on the other gifts to be successful. That's what it takes, just like on a sports team, right? And so he was saying, listen, just like you have to recruit people for your team, the, uh, when you're recruiting people for ministry, you want to recruit people that you think can be successful who are actually bought into the process. Now, notice there's one important common denominator with all these spiritual gifts, and Paul wanted to point that out. He's saying no matter what your spiritual gift is, the common denominator is the Holy Spirit is the origin of that gift. See, I think that's getting lost in our day and age. There are too many pastors who want to be rock stars. You guys notice that? There's too many pastors that want to be looked up to and want to be worshipped and admired. There are too many singers who start off humbly wanting uh, to give praise to God and to bring glory to God through music and end up wanting to be you know, Metallica. <laughs> I mean, it, they can't stay with bringing the glory to God. There's too many teams, or too many uh, people like that today. You have to remember something. Whatever you're gifted at, God gave it to you to use to glorify Him. To glorify Him. If it's glorifying you, there is a problem. And the problem is you, because the source of that gift is the same. It's the Holy Spirit. But in this Corinthian church, people were actually abusing the spiritual gifts that were supposed to be used to edify God and for spiritual edification of the church. And by that I mean, I mean, they wanted people to see their gifts and admire them. They wanted people to see their gifts and respect them. I was at a Bible conference one time and the, the keynote speaker was, a, was a, the head of a, of a Christian college. He'd written several books, just a brilliant man, great speaker. But he was just humble. And uh, he shows up there, and evidently people never looked at the back panel of the book to see what he looked like. But he shows up there wearing blue jeans and cowboy boots and the western-style shirt, you know. Uh, he was from that way. And uh, all these people in suits, all these pastors and stuff in suits were walking right by him. Nobody paid any attention to him. Didn't say one word to him. And I'm walking by that table, and I thought, oh, God, 
And I thought, hey, that, that's him. So I started talking to him. He was just a good old boy, just a very intelligent good old boy. And no one gave him any mind. But when they called for the keynote speaker and out walks Mr. Cowboy Blue, Blue Jeans, you should have seen the looks on all their faces. It was one of the most brilliant messages I've ever heard. I was enthralled in that message for an hour, and it felt like it was five minutes. And afterwards, those same people who ignored him were just flogging around him and, and, and pulling on him and wanting his attention. You see, he wasn't worth their time when he didn't look important. When they found out he was important, they wanted to spend some time with him. That's where the Corinthian people are here. They wanted to be respected. They wanted to be recognized and respected. They didn't really care about bringing glory to God. They wanted to bring glory to themselves. And sadly, that attitude still exists uh, in churches today, and, and it's something we deal with constantly. That attitude, when you have the kind of attitude that tries to draw attention to yourself by putting other people down or ignoring people you see as less important than yourself, you run more people away than you bring to Christ. You know, the churches with all your rules, you know, with all your little beliefs and isms and pisms and things like that and the way we judge people, that's why people don't want to go to church. You know what they want? They want to walk into a church where they're treated like family, where they're taught the truth, and where when they leave, they get to take the message home with them. That's what people want. But somehow, as churches, we ended up just like them. We want to be looked at. We want to be respected rather than put the light on God. One thing the law of Moses should have taught people is that there is no good human, so it's a fruitless effort to try to look good. If you look at Romans 3, 9, and 10, I read this every time I start getting a little full of myself, which isn't very often because I'm a realist. Uh, but verse 9, it says, Well then, uh, should we conclude that what that we Jews are better than others? No, not at all. For we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. As the scriptures say, not, uh, no one is righteous, not even, not even one. I love this, Romans 3.23, For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. So that being said, I set all that up for what Paul's about to do. He's about to list nine spiritual gifts that God uses in people. Is this every spiritual gift? No. There's nine of them. But he just, for some reason, is the ones he wanted to mention. So let's break those down. So starting in verse 8. It says, To one person, the Spirit gives the ability to give wise advice. Uh, to another, the same Spirit gives a message of special knowledge. Uh, the same Spirit gives a great faith to another, and to someone else, the one Spirit gives the gift of healing. Uh, he gives one person the power to perform miracles, and another the ability to prophesy. He gives someone else the ability to discern whether a message is from the Spirit of God or from another spirit, still another person is given the ability to speak in unknown languages while another is given the ability to interpret what is being said. It is the one and only Spirit who distributes all these gifts. He alone decides which gift each person should have. Now, I broke this down into one word because that's the way it was originally, and when you, the, I use the New Living because it's easier to understand, but sometimes it's a little wordy. So the first gift he talks about is wisdom. Okay, and this is referring to spiritual insight about doctrinal truths. That's what wisdom is. Paul used this uh, in this letter in, in chapter 2, look at 1 Corinthians 2, 6. He said, yet when I uh, am among mature believers, I do speak words of wisdom, but not the kind of wisdom that belongs to this world or to the rulers of this world who are soon forgotten. No, the wisdom we speak is of the mystery of God, his plan that was previously hidden, even though he made it for the ultimate uh, glory before the world began. But the rulers of this world have not understood it. If they had, they would not have crucified our glorious Lord. So there are varying degrees of godly wisdom. There's just varying degrees of it. And none is better than the other, just varying degrees of godly wisdom. 
And the problem is many people mistake worldly intelligence with godly wisdom, and they are not the same thing. Not even remotely the same thing. Okay? Godly wisdom is totally different because the person who is who has godly wisdom has that accompanied with humility. Okay, you can't be you can't have godly wisdom and be proud and full of yourself. Because the ultimate example of wisdom was Jesus himself. Yet Jesus never ever boasted about his own intellect or tried to lift himself up. All his wisdom was shared in humility. So usually people who uh, who have this gift misunderstand that the wisdom they have is from God, and sometimes it goes to their head. And we see people getting confused, godly wisdom and worldly wisdom, but here's what you see when somebody gets that confused. Okay, They love acting like an intellectual, using big words and being condescending, but they have no connection with people. That's not godly wisdom. That's not godly wisdom. Uh, they're just proving how seriously lacking in godly wisdom they are if they're not trying to connect with people with the wisdom they have. Okay, because godly wisdom, like all spiritual gifts, should glorify God, not oneself. So if you consider yourself wise and consider yourself smarter than others and always think you're the smartest person in the room, you're probably not in God's eyes. Just the way it works. Godly wisdom is always accompanied with humility. And then there's knowledge. Knowledge just refers to the ability to apply doctrinal truth to everyday life. And people who have this gift, uh, or the gift of knowledge, know how to apply even the difficult passages. Have you ever met that person that just makes the things you don't get simple? Have you ever met that person? And you ask them a question because you're so confused and they explain it so simply, you, you almost feel stupid. You know what I mean? Have you ever been there? I'm telling you, I have, I've known so many men and women like this that I could go to in my life that just had the knowledge of knowing how to apply it to your life. I remember there was one old preacher kind of teaching a young one humility. Well, it came time for him to preach his first sermon and he was stoked. And he says, I am going to kill it. Right, I've been working, I've recited this, I've practiced this, I am going to kill it. He jumps up to preach and just bombs. I mean, and let me tell you, from someone who has bombed many times, it's a rough feeling when you get up there, right? So he gets up, totally bombs, trips all over himself, and when he's walking down, his head's bowed and his shoulders are sagging, and that, that old preacher came up and said, listen, if you would have went up there like you came down, you would have came down like you went up. And when I heard that, I'm thinking, what? And I started thinking, he was saying, if you would have went up there with the humility you came down with, you would have been much more pleased with the product you put on that stage. If you'd have done that. Those are the kind of people that have that gift of knowledge. They can take scenarios and situations and apply God's word simply where people can grasp it. Okay, there's a gift of faith. And this gift is referring to people who have an unusual measure of faith in God. I mean, beyond that of most Christians. People uh, with this gift not only know God's promises, they actually believe them. They actually believe God's promises. These people don't fall apart when worldly uh, situations seem hopeless. Okay, These people understand who's really in charge. For example, when politicians or politics or society in general or government start falling apart and screwing everything up like that would ever happen, you know, if that were to happen, right, the people who have the gift of faith, they're not going to lose their mind. They're just going to take it in stride. You know why? Because they know two important things. First of all, they know God is still on the throne of power. It's still Him who's in charge. And the second thing is, God always has been and always will be sovereign in calling the shots. No one is going to change God's mind. No stupidity, no level of poor leadership is going to change God's mind. People with the gift of faith realize that when God said, I'm going to take care of my people, 
I will protect you. I will provide for you. It doesn't matter who's in the White House. It doesn't matter who's in the United Nations. It doesn't matter who the governor is or who our senators or state representatives are. He said he's going to take care of us. And people who have the gift of faith really believe that. They really believe that. And they don't allow their surrounding circumstances to define them so much. Here's where it starts to get a little hairy. Healing is another one to get. And this refers to the ability to restore health and even hold off death sometimes temporarily. Now, if you look at all the biblical evidence on healing, I'm probably going to get a ton of emails that I'm going to have to ignore, but um, if you look at the biblical evidence for uh, healing, there's really not a lot of evidence for it past what's called the apostolic era. The apostolic era was a time when uh, the apostles were trying to spread the gospel to, a, to the known world to people who were very skeptical. Now, remember, these people saw hundreds, maybe thousands of other people come along, religious people, claiming that somebody was God or claiming that someone was all-knowing or all-sovereign. And to be honest with you, it became second-hand to them, and it was, it was really hard to share the gospel at this time. But when they saw somebody who could rise someone from the dead, so when, they, when they saw someone who could heal the sick, when they saw someone who could do those things, it brought legitimacy to their claims, and it brought a lot of people to Christ. Now, I'm not saying, don't email me, I'm not saying that this gift does not exist at all today. It may. But it will exist without disclaimers. Let me explain that. Okay? A lot of charlatans you see on TV that call themselves preachers claim to have this gift today. A lot of them claim to have this gift today. But they have these convenient disclaimers. Okay? And uh, they have these disclaimers to protect themselves from being exposed as the frauds they are. That's why they have these disclaimers. Let me share some of these disclaimers. I can't heal you because you don't have enough faith. That's one of their disclaimers about their gift of healing. Which absolutely drives me crazy. I'll talk about that here in just a minute. Another disclaimer they usually have is they work better when there's a convenient surcharge with that healing. You know, that's usually some of the disclaimers. The apostles who actually had that gift, okay, they could heal anybody whether they had faith or not. If you have the gift of healing, it has nothing to do with the person you're healing. Nothing. Not this gift of healing. If you remember, when Peter and James came into the gate called Beautiful, there was a beggar asking for money. He wasn't asking to be healed. He didn't want to get saved. He didn't want, you know what he wanted? A Big Mac. That's all the guy wanted. He didn't want anything but money and food. And they walked by him and they said, I mean, they weren't even expecting to see him. And Peter says, well, I don't have any silver or gold, but what I do have, I'll give you. And he touches him and heals him, and the man stands and walks. That man had no faith whatsoever. He didn't even know who they were. He could have cared less about Jesus. But they healed him because they had the true apostolic era gift of healing. So here's all I'll say about that. Do I think it doesn't exist anymore? I would never say that. But if someone does have it, they would be able to heal without any disclaimers. I had a guy approach me one time and tell me he was a prophet and had the gift of healing, double whammy. And I said, okay. I said, I try not to get in that conversation. You ever have people pull you into something you're trying conveniently to dodge? Yeah, that's what he did. He kept pulling me back to it. Did I tell you I had the gift of healing? I'm like, yeah. Can we talk about something else, please? Kept coming around. And finally I looked at him and I said, do you really think you have the gift of healing? He said, yes. I said, just like the apostles. He said, absolutely. I said, get in the car. He said, why? He said, we're going to Riley's Children's Hospital. We're going to clean that place out. He said, well, that's not how it works. How does it work? 
Well, the person you're healing has to believe they can be healed. I said, that's not the apostolic gift of healing. If you have it, you can heal them. That's how that gift actually works. There's another story I'll share with you. I probably shouldn't, but I will. Um, there was a young young lady who was blind, and her parents, she was about 10 or 11 years old. Her parents wanted her to receive the sight. And one of the traveling evangelists that has all these TV shows where slapping people in the head and stuff said that you know he was having a healing crusade. So they drove their kid all the way to South Bend and were so excited because they really believed this guy could heal. And when they got there, that, that pastor's handler said, sorry, we're not doing eyes today. I wish that were a joke. You know, if I was that dad, I'd say, I'm not doing peace and turn my cheek today. No, I'm just kidding. No, <laughs> I'm just saying, I don't do that. I'm not advocating violence. That's a joke. But, I mean, that's the kind of stuff we see with that. Now, there again... Could someone have that gift? Possibly, but it certainly wouldn't uplift them. They wouldn't charge for it, and there would be no disclaimer if it exists. Okay. Now, the power to perform miracles. This is likely talking about casting out demons. Uh, that's what a lot of people talked about when they said performing miracles, because there were a lot of people back then that were considered possessed, and those uh, the apostles had the ability to cast out demons. Now, here's another one. Prophecy is another gift he mentioned. And this is referring to the ability to declare God's divine truth to people. And people who have this gift can clearly explain Scripture in a way people can grasp. Okay? Now, what has happened over the years is we mistakenly confuse prophecy with fortune-telling. They're not the same. When people talk about prophecy, they think, oh, that, that's talking about the end time. And no, not necessarily. It just means to be able to explain divine truth in a way people can grasp it. Okay, sometimes it's about the end of time, sometimes it's not. But it's not some lady with a crystal ball and a Madame Chloe. That's not what prophecy is about. Uh, discernment. This refers to the ability to distinguish the truth from deception. Now, if the Corinthians had anybody with this gift, they certainly were not using it. Okay? I didn't see any evidence of that, but this is talking about people who just have that ability to recognize when someone is trying to be deceptive and when something is a, is a truth. Now, here's one I'm not going to spend much time on. Uh, tongues. Because we're going to talk about that in chapter 14 in great detail. But this refers, pay attention, to the ability to speak and unlearn but known living language. An unlearned, previously unlearned, but known living language. This is not talking about babbling like an idiot. That's not what this is talking about. This isn't talking about some mystic language never heard by humans again. That's not what this is talking about. The word, the Greek word for the word tongues is the word glossal, and it means an understandable language or a known language. Back in the pagan temples, now I'm not going to go too deep, too deep in this, but back in the pagan temples there was a practice called a static babble a static babble and what would happen was people would stand up and just start babbling and another person would jump up and say be quiet and listen what the gods have to say and they would pretend to be interpreting the babble from the gods into their language that's where that practice came from and it made its way into the Corinthian church and they tried to blend it with Christianity but we'll look closer at that when we get to chapter 14 uh, the last gift he mentioned here was interpretation. And this refers to the ability to translate and unlearn uh, but previously known language uh, in an express assembly. Now, here's the thing. If you look in the book of, uh, in the book of Acts when it said that, that Peter and James stood up and started speaking and talked about speaking in tongues, Peter and James just spoke. What were they preaching? Probably Galilean. I don't know. Probably Galilean, be my guess. Uh, and they were preaching, and everybody from every nation heard it in their own language, okay? And it stunned people because they're like, who are these guys? 
that we can all hear them in our own language and they're speaking Galilean. Well, that was the true gift of tongues. God gave them that ability so that they could override any, any uh, communication gaps that may have been. So that's the, that's the gift that he mentioned here. And all of these are done to uplift the body of Christ and, and they're supposed to be done in, uh, you know, in teamwork with, another, with the other gifts. Now let's look at verses 12 through 19. I might be taking on too much when we get this whole thing and we'll get Let's see. Verse 12 says, The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, some are free, but we all have been baptized into one body by one spirit, uh, and we all share the same spirit. Yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. If the foot says, I am not a part of the body because I am not a hand, that does not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, I am not a part of the body because I am not an eye, would that make it any less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? If your whole body were an ear, how would you smell Smell anything? Verse 19, but, or verse 18, but our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. How strange a body would be if it only had one part. Okay, so Paul wanted to compare the body of Christ with the human body, okay? And he said that, that like the human body, the human body has to function together to perform as one unit. They all work in concert. He's saying so also the body of Christ should function as one. That's what should happen. And he stressed how there's no individual body part that is capable of making the whole body function correctly. There's no one part that can do it. They all have to work together to make that happen. Each part has to focus on performing its specific duty just as it was designed to do. When you think about it, this is a perfect illustration. Because when every individual part of the body does its job, the body functions at its highest and most efficient capacity. Well, the Corinthian church had become so divided that they weren't even effective anymore. They weren't working together. They each were trying to get their own glory and their own credit. They each had their own ulterior motives. They were not working together like the body was. They were completely out of structure. And so Paul wanted to correct that with this illustration. And by the way he structured this illustration, we can assume there were a lot of power struggles in that church. Uh, there was a lot of human pride getting in the way, and it was destroying ministry. And when human pride gets involved in unity, uh, in the unity of the body of Christ, it's going to go downhill, and it's going to go downhill quickly. Listen, as a senior pastor, I could write a book about power struggles. I have seen them in every color, shape, and size. Uh, I could write a book on ministerial jealousy. I've seen it in every size, shape, and fashion. You know, by ministerial jealousy, I mean jealousy between churches. Never understood that. I do not understand that. If there's another church in this community that's teaching the truth, I want them to be blessed. I want them to grow. I want them to reach people. They're on my team. I don't look at them as an adversary, and we will help them to succeed. No matter what's hanging over the door, we will help them to succeed. But I've seen jealousy between churches. I've seen jealousy between departments within a church. I've seen jealousy between ministers. I've seen it all, and all that is a result of pride creeping in rather than having the humility to just do your gift the way God told you to do it and work as a part of the system. But the catalyst that keeps that kind of debate going is the enemy. Because the enemy knows if he can get people sidetracked from doing their gift, what God has blessed them to do, he knows that they won't be effective anymore. Now, Evidently, Paul didn't think the Christians were getting, or these uh, Corinthians were getting the point, so he expounded a little more, verses 20 through 31. He said, yes, there are many parts, but only one body. 
The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. In fact, some parts of the body that we seem, uh, uh, the body that seem weakest and least important are actually the most necessary. And the parts we regard as less honorable are those we uh, clothe with the, greatness, with the greatest care. So we carefully protect those parts that should not be seen. While, uh, see, while the, the more honorable parts do not require the special care. So God has put the body together uh, in such that the honor and care are given to the parts that have less dignity. This makes for harmony among the members so that all the members care for each other. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. If one part is honored, all the parts are, uh, are glad. All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is a part of it. Here are some of the parts uh, God has appointed for the church. First, apostles. Second, and we're going to go over this in another message. But first, our apostles. Second, our prophets. Third, our teachers. Then those who do miracles and those who have the gift of healing and those who can help others and those who have the gift of leadership and those who speak in unknown languages. Uh, are we all apostles? Are we all prophets? Are we all teachers? Do we all have the power to do a miracle? Do we all have the gift of healing? Do we all have the ability to speak in unknown, unknown languages? Do we all have the ability to interpret unknown languages? Of course not. So you should earnestly desire the, more, the most helpful gifts. But now let me show you the way of life that is best of all. Now, that was a lot. But he keeps repeating the same theme, and I didn't want to keep preaching it week after week. Because... The, the theme is the same. Like a body has many parts, a church has many parts. They're all equally important. Now, it's easy to allow the enemy to deceive us into believing that we are uh, independent and more important than we actually are. That's really easy. It happens all the time in churches, right? But no one realizes how important something is until it's gone or it's not working. For example, how many times have you had to move your spare tire and stuff when you're working on other stuff and you're thinking, this thing is just in my way? How many people thought that? Has anybody here ever made the cardinal sin and taken it out? You got anybody ever done that? Neither. But hypothetically, if you were to take it out to make room for stuff, you were taken out to your tree stand, hypothetically, and you got a flat tire and went back there and there was no tire or jack, hypothetically that was a really important thing that you took out. You didn't realize how important it was until hypothetically you threw your tree stuff in. Anyway, totally hypothetical. Okay, here's here's another one. The little toe seems unimportant. Everybody knows where I'm going, don't you? How many people have ever stubbed your little toe? Raise your hand. Broken it? Anybody here ever broken it? Okay. You don't think about your little toe. I mean, there's not a lot of jewelry for your little toe. People just don't pay a lot of attention to your little toe until you stub it or break it. Then every step you take, you think, how did I not know how important that one little thing was in my body? Every step. I used to joke with my wife when we lived in our old house because every time she'd come around the corner, she'd stub her toe on that same chair. Every time. And after a while, I thought, hmm, you think she'd learn that that chair's there until I realized me and the kids kept moving it. But either, either way, she understood the value of the small toe when she smacked it against something to realize how painful it actually was. How many people have ever got something in your eye? I don't care what's going on. I don't care if you're standing in a furnace and you're on fire. If there's something in your eye, that's priority one, isn't it? It's terrible. It's so funny how we can 
We can look at the body. This is why Paul used it. We can look at our body and think about how many times a part we never think about when it's damaged, we think about more than you ever thought. I remember when I had shoulder surgery. Michelle just had shoulder surgery. I never realized how much I rolled on that shoulder until I had surgery in that shoulder. It's the same concept. Paul was saying, listen, each one is important in having an effective body. And if one of them's hurt, the whole body will feel it. If one of them's missing, the whole body will feel it. The same is true in a church. Listen, everyone has their calling. And you don't realize how important that is until it's gone. For instance, if there's no one to do nursery, I promise you, you'll realize how important that is. I'm, anybody ever been to a church that didn't have nursery? Enough said. You know what I mean? How about VBS? VBS is such a blessing, such a blessing. And when you don't have it, it's amazing, like 20 or 30% of your growth comes through programs like that. A children's ministry, youth group, those things, we don't think about them until we don't have them, and the church just isn't the same if they're not there. Those people who care for the sick, the people who are administrative, the people who clean. You don't know how important the people who volunteer to clean are until they don't. Then you realize how important they are. Right? It's, this is what Paul was trying to point out. There is no gift more important than the other. People always think that because I'm a, I'm a pastor and I'm seen, my job's more important. It isn't. If you're not inviting people and living your lives in the community, who's going to come and listen? Who am I going to be preaching to? Listen, over the pandemic, when we had that going on, I was preaching to a black, dark room with lights in my face, and Nate in the back going, wait, stop, I got a noise, we got to start that over. Which, if you didn't know, is terrible if you have ADHD, like me, All right? But that's what it would be if you guys weren't living it and sharing the gospel. I would have nobody to preach to. So every department has gifted people in it. And you should honor their value because when it's gone, you'll miss it. I promise you that. So to sum it all up, what Paul was trying to say here, uh, Paul knew that any good team had to be dedicated to their abilities and to the whole unit and to the main objective. And in his case, he was saying, we all need to do, use our spiritual gifts to make people aware of Jesus Christ and how to become a believer so that we might enlarge the borders of the kingdom. And there's no job within that that's not important and isn't necessary. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and stop there. We'll pick up there. Next week, I'm going to ask you to please bow your head. If this is your first time, we always like to give an invitation. Um, if there's someone here or someone listening online who's not sure where they stand or they just need prayer, if you're watching and listening online, God knows your heart, I'll be praying for you. But if you're here, just make eye contact and put your head right back down. Bless your people. And I do pray for you, by the way. I don't just say that. Bless your people. And if you're listening online again, God knows your heart. But, you know, believers, I always pray for us. I was having a discussion with my wife about the condition of the world today. And one of the things that just stood out to me is that the absent voice amongst all the turmoil is the voices of believers. That's what's absent. Everybody is saying their peace except those who know the Prince of Peace. Why are we quiet? We are needed more now than we ever were. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for all that you do. I thank you for your love and your mercy and your kindness, but especially for your grace, because there is nothing I can do to deserve this. I could have never been good enough. I have nothing to trade. It is simply by faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, that gave me eternal life. I believe that what he did was enough to guarantee mine, and he gave it to me. And God, we know that's how the program works. So if there's someone who doesn't know you, whatever's holding them back, just remove it. Because you know who they are. And you died for them anyway. 
because you desire to embrace them and share eternity with them. And if someone will make that decision day after they contact us, Lord, but for those of us who are believers, let us live what we profess. It is so easy to just fall into a routine of going to church and reading and really not accomplishing anything. Let us remember that we come here to be strengthened to take what we learn here to the world. Give us a passion to enlarge the borders of your kingdom by sharing this gospel message and living a life that praise your love. God, as we leave here, we just pray that make us powerful influences in our families and communities. And we pray that you would watch over us and keep us safe. And if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, let us come together one more time and give you all the praise, honor, and glory. So we ask you to please